Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am so full of leftover Thanksgiving pie, and I'm very happy about it. Less full of pie, but happy to be talking about movies with my friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, theaters are back, baby. Sure, $14 million over five days doesn't sound like a lot of money, but Crude's The New Age blew away box office expectations and had the best opening quote-unquote weekend of any film since Tenet. Uh, parents, it seems, have had just about enough of this whole staying at home with your children for ungodly amounts of time thing and have decided it's worth venturing out to the multiplex despite skyrocketing coronavirus cases and a plethora of streaming options at home. I empathize greatly with this, having two children of my own kind of running around underfoot. Uh, Alyssa... What do you think? Do you think it is it is uh, if, if theaters are open in your neck of the woods, is that something you would consider doing? Or uh, do you think it's irresponsible right now to be headed back to the theaters during this this tumultuous time? I probably wouldn't do it for a Croods movie. Um, I might do the whole private screening thing if I had the opportunity to see Dune but or Wonder Woman 1984. But uh, you probably could not drag me out to the movie theaters uh, for something that's the second movie in a much delayed animated franchise. Although I will be sort of curious to see it at some point because apparently the animation for the movie was finished from the animators' homes, at least in part, um, because they were wrapping production during the pandemic. Um, I understand why people are going stir crazy, but yeah, yeah, you, you couldn't get me in theaters for that one. Peter, what about you? Are you going to the Croods? Going to go see the Croods in a yeah, theater? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with your question, as Alyssa, as Alyssa kind of said, is it's a Croods movie, <laughs> right? That that uh, it's like almost it it renders the rest of the question irrelevant. As I just don't have any interest in seeing a Croods film. Um, but, you know, I, I also just want to take issue uh, to some extent with your with your argument that theaters are back. They are back maybe a little bit more than they have been for this year. Fair enough. But like, go look at the original Croods films uh, from March 2013. Go look at its box office. Uh, it made 40 something million dollars on its opening weekend on Saturday alone during its opening weekend in the United States. It made almost 19 million dollars. That's so like that's that's a seven year old box office figure mm -hmm. from the middle of March, which is not a holiday weekend. Movie would, theaters are not back. Would Movie you, theaters would you, have inched ever closer towards being back just a little bit. Wow. So would you say that I was being hyperbolic in my suggestion that theaters are back then? On a or, podcast, who does? Or, that? I, uh, or, or is this some sort of latent autism ticking through? I'm just. I, I could you not tell that I was being sarcastic when I said theaters are back, baby. <laughs> uh, I, I no. I mean, look, I, it's, look it's you're you're, you're it's, actually it's, playing into something that's interesting in some of the reports is that this movie did outperform the expectations. It did yes. a little bit better than people thought it was well, going it, to. I mean, in a way that is notable. Out it clearly outperformed expectations. It, it, the movie that we're going to discuss later, uh, Let Him Go, grossed, I think, eight or nine million dollars over, over a couple of, of weeks. Its, yeah. Over the course of its run uh, so far, it had basically a month in theaters before going to SVOD um, uh, or PVOD. Uh, but the the but I but I do think that there's I, I do think there is something a little bit interesting here 
that the the first movie to kind of outperform expectations is a family movie. I do think that there's something something worth noting here, which is that you know we're we're in a situation where lots of people are stuck at home with their kids for long stretches of time. Um, where there are lots of other things that have been shut down or just aren't aren't open and, and up and running. Um, and really, I, I I do think that there is a there's kind of a you know there there is something not terribly surprising that one of the first uh, movies to really outperform expectations is a family movie. Yeah, right? Alyssa, I mean, I mean, do you think do you think there's there's anything unreasonable about that supposition? No, not at all. And I would add that there is the perception that children are less susceptible to the coronavirus, less likely to get seriously sick if they are infected, less likely to spread it to other people, and so. It's entirely possible that parents are both going completely insane from trying to effectively homeschool their kids and keep them entertained over a long weekend when there's not even the distraction of Zoom school to do that and feel like their kids are less at risk um, than they would be, you know, from uh, than they themselves would be if they were going to a movie with a bunch of other adults um, or if they were, you know, taking a grandmother or even just going out for a date. I also think, I mean, it's worth noting that I think movies aimed squarely at adults like Tenet may be a harder sell because those same parents with kids, it's not just that you have to go to the theater and take the risk. You have to f- find someone to take care of your child, which, you know, finding a babysitter can be challenging under any circumstances. But if you don't have a regular baby- babysitter, if you, you know, if your kids are not in daycare or you don't have a nanny, um, but you need someone to stay home with your eight-year-old, that means bringing someone else entirely into your house. And so I would be, I mean, if I were a studio executive, I would be wondering if the thing to do is start, you know, kind of backload the schedule for adult movies, not least because you don't want to take risks on them, but because you think, you know, a family occasion is going to be more just logistically feasible and more emotionally appealing to people. Um, as the vaccines start to roll out in the spring, as case numbers hopefully tick down. Um, so, I mean, I'm sort of interested in it as a scheduling experiment, um, not so much in proof that theaters are back in any substantial way. I mean, I do think it gets to two things um, that are worth noting. One is that Tenet was a limited experiment, a single data point, just one movie, one type of movie, basically on one weekend. Yep. And that's not how the box office normally works, right? Any given weekend, especially in the summer, um, you know, these big blockbuster weekends, which now start, you know, in the middle of March and stretch all the way at least through the beginning of August and then kind of start up again in, in November. Um, any one of those big weekends doesn't just have one single blockbuster. It might be dominated by one single blockbuster, but there's always some other stuff playing. And usually right. there's, there's, there's a, a movie for kind of teenagers. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's but, a movie that you can take a kid to, et cetera. Yeah. And that's the mm-hmm. other thing that that's sort of just worth thinking about here is we don't talk about this all that much as critics. It's, a you know, I would say it's a, it's something that just doesn't get mentioned to people who sort of are a by people who write about film and who talk about film as an art form. But movies, theatrically, are a form of childcare. And 
and and people use them that way as like here is two or three hours in which I don't have to pay quite as much attention in which I, I can bring a bunch of kids. It's air conditioned. It's entertaining enough, maybe for me. I hope this is one of the reasons that Pixar movies do so well. Um, and that form of childcare, along with many many other forms of childcare and childcare substitutes, has been largely taken away from from American parents over the last eight or nine months. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I again, I, I do think there's there's something kind of interesting here about it being a, a family movie and getting getting away. I, I, I do wonder if, you know, we have the winter break coming up, right? The the schools will be out for a couple of weeks um, and you, you will see another situation in which parents are kind of like, well, what am I going to do for the next week or so here? We got we got kids around the house. If, if they're going to uh, show them else- soul. On something Disney plus. Else. Well, that's I mean, that that's the other thing. We are kind of hitting a, a meaty part of the the SVOD uh, schedule here. You know, if they get bored with the Mandalorian, uh, which broke into the top 10 of the Nielsen ratings uh, this 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 week, I think it was the, one of the first Disney plus things to do it. Um, uh, the the other thing to think about here, you know, I, I, I my my concern again, when I kind of jokingly say theaters are back is that the people people will look at this and say well we don't really need uh, you know this should this should take bailout bailouts off the table right there was a there was a, a i think senator schumer introduced a uh a, an addendum to his save our stages act that that would provision some money for um uh theaters both independent and and the chains this this week and i am i am I don't know. I'm I, I, I do kind of wonder if people are going to say, well, you know, look, we don't need it now. We get, people people can choose to go back or not to go back. You know, it's the free market at work. And I really hate this argument because nothing about what has happened during the coronavirus has been the free market at work. Uh, this There's there's a huge government pressure to keep theaters closed um, and limits and on in many cases. And all that. It's not just pressure. It is. It's mandatory. Actual, in, I mean, actual. Yeah, in Washington D.C., in New York City, in right. Los Angeles, it is mandatory. Theaters have not been allowed to open for any reason at all since uh, the middle of March. Yeah, no, I the the Avalon Theater, which is the last um, completely independent theater operated in D.C. up in Chevy Chase, is actually trying to raise. I mean, they've been doing some creative programming stuff with um, sort of license getting licenses that so you can stream stuff sort of through their platform and they can make some money on that. But they're also trying to make money to upgrade their fil- their air filtration system so people will feel more comfortable coming back. Um, and they've, they've done pretty well in Pledge Drive so far. But yeah, it's really, I mean, it's not even just that theaters, for the most part, aren't bringing any money because they're closed or nobody wants to come. In order to get people back in substantial numbers, they're going to have to be able to tell people that they have upgraded spaces that are sort of historically not terribly hygienic, much less, you know, state-of-the-art air filtration hygienic. Um, and so I think rebuilding that consumer confidence is just, it's an initial cost on top of, you know, paying people 13 bucks an hour to sling popcorn um, that I think people have not really factored into this. And that's, it's a real challenge. Movie theaters are in many ways in a similar boat to, to restaurants and bars where if you talk to restaurant and bar owners, they'll say, uh, obviously, the capacity limits are are hurting us in some ways. They they restrict our business, and there's limits on what we can do. But even if we had no capacity limits, if the capacity limits and the restrictions were completely lifted tomorrow, the business just wouldn't be there. And I think that if you look at what happened with Tenet, where it underperformed 
even relative to the capacity limits that were there. Um, and also what you're seeing with the crudes, which is overperformed relative to pre-weekend expectations, but is still just not doing great business by any stretch. Um, what you see is that, yes, some people are willing to venture out to movie theaters, uh, but people don't feel safe. And until people feel safe, then that's not going to change. Peter, what is the libertarian perspective on uh, offering a bailout to theaters in locations where government has mandated that they be closed? I mean, libertarians are divided on this. Uh, a lot would just say, we'll just lift the restrictions and don't do a bailout. Um, there are some folks who I think would at least be open to the idea of uh, of some sorts of bailouts per in places where uh, businesses have been forcibly closed, um, effectively as a takings, right? Um, in the same way that uh, when you eminent domain something, you have to pay for it. Um, mm -hmm. And and so, you know, I, I don't think that there is a, a, a single libertarian position or a, a, a single idea it would depend on when which, is there ever it would depend on which libertarian you asked and at what point. And people's thinking on this has evolved over the, the many months. You know, I think there were uh, more people who were maybe willing to accept a kind of um, close things for a little while and bail them out, you know, for six weeks type uh, arrangement earlier in the year. But the fact that this has gone on so long um, has probably turned more people against a sort of policy of close them and bail them out um, and instead turned people towards uh, something that says we have to find a way to, to live with this and to make it work um, and to, you know, to look for workarounds. Uh, like I, I, I find myself very conflicted on this. Um, I talk about this on another podcast for Reason Magazine pretty regularly. Uh, I, I just, I don't really like any of the available options is where I'm at. Um, and, uh, and, and I want the world that we are in to not be the world that we are in and, and to get out of it as soon as we can and to go back to seeing movies. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as the as the resident hippie, you know, money's cheap, bail them out. If we want, you know, if we want the architecture of normal in air quotes to be there when we come back, we got to pay for it. Um, just money's cheap, bail them out. Yeah, I'm I'm generally opposed to bailouts, but if you do forcibly close uh, locations and then you do put your fingers on the scale, I mean, it's not just that they're closed; it's that they're being reopened and really haphazard willy-nilly fashion i mean andrew cuomo you know sitting there saying like movie theaters aren't essential but gyms and bowling alleys are so they can open and the casino can open because that generates revenue for the state sure but you yeah. know movie theaters now got to keep those closed so i'm i'm basically i do for... see the case for bowling alleys i mean they're yeah. they're extremely important <laughs> they're extremely important high ceilings you know uh big airy spaces you'll be fine in a bowling alley just like you'd be fine in a theater but we'll, we'll come back to that i mean you have to you have to put on fresh day, shoes I and think. they spray them out every time so it's got to be safe <laughs> well it's lysol i mean that that was a precious commodity for a while uh all right uh so what do we think is it a controversy or an controversy that folks headed back to the theaters this week bonus controversy or controversy uh, controversy or controversy that Senator Schumer wants to bail out theaters? Alyssa, go. Uh, both of them are controversies. Bail out the theaters, entertain your kids the way you can, uh, make them wear masks. Peter. Bail out the theaters is obviously a controversy. I mean, just in the sense that it is controversial. People are people but it are shouldn't are, be controversial. Bail people, out the theaters. People don't yeah, agree we, on this and don't agree are, on whether we are offering we are offering a prescriptive uh controversy or controversy or should it be controversial? Yes, but I'm responding descriptively no. to your prescriptive question. No. Um 
I think the actual the actual controversy is that uh, people are saying things like, well, the box office is turning out better than expected when it's this bad. And that's that's something uh, that is notable, that is important um, and that tells us about, I think, the medium term future of theatrical uh, viewing and exhibition. Okay, Uh, I would say that there are both basically controversies. People should go back to the theaters because theaters are safe. Uh, And also it's a controversy because people uh, should bail out the theaters because we have idiots in the government who have have shut them down unnecessarily. I agree Uh, there are idiots in the government. I'll give you lots of idiots in the government. All right. Uh, As a reminder to fans of this segment, there's going to be a special bonus controversies and controversies available for members of Bulwark Plus. Head over to atma.thebulwark.com to find it for yourself. That's atma.thebulwark.com. All right, on to the main event. Let Him Go was a movie folks could have found in theaters uh, for the last month or so, but for the most part have chosen not to. As I said, I think it's grossed $8 million over the the course of four or five weeks here. It's not not doing boffo box office, just like most things are not doing boffo box office. And that's a pity because the 1960 set neo-westernish movie uh, starring Kevin Costner and Diane Lane as grandparents trying to rescue their grandson from a deranged clan of North Dakotans les- led by Leslie Manville is pretty good. I quite liked it. Um, it's the Black Ledges, that's Costner and Lane, versus the Wee Boys, that's Manville and her brood, which include a slightly off-kilter Jeffrey Donovan as a kind of slightly rapey uncle in this this thing. He 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 jumps out to me as that guy from the TV show that I never watched, Burn Notice. Burn Notice. Like every yes. t- every time I every time I see him on screen in any literally in anything, I'm like. Oh, yeah, that's the guy from Burn Notice. I should have watched that. Uh, Let Him Go's strongest attribute is the way it uses the spaces of the American West, really the North, because it takes place mostly in Montana and North Dakota, but the American West in spirit uh, to heighten the drama and tension. And the, the Dakotas, that's like where the Badlands are. That's the West. Yeah, I, I, but I mean, it's I'm saying geographically it's the north it's the north it's north it's north of the west uh it's It's the uh, mythic west man out out in the wastes of the mythic west the nearest ranch is dozens of miles away laws mean very little and clannishness reigns supreme uh costner has slid seamlessly from the role of america's dad to the role of america's grandpa as he hits his mid-60s in stride and diane lane's steely turn as maggie blackledge kind of hits just the right mix of maternal or I guess grand maternal concern and anger at our or her or everyone's inability to right every wrong. Leslie Manville has earned extra plaudits for her turn as Blanche Weeboy, the grizzled grandma of the plains domineering uh, uh, the, the grizzled grandma of the plains, sorry, domineering her boys and their kin. Though I have to be honest, she was a little bit hammy for me in this role. I It's a bit, a little bit over the top, I thought. Anyway, Peter... What did you make of this picture from writer-director Thomas Bazooka? IMDb assures me that his name is in fact pronounced Bazooka. Uh, and and do you think the Mountain Vistas would have played better on a big, awesome theater screen instead of your cramped cathode ray-tubed three by four home set at home with the speakers built into the TV that you use to watch things? I, I watched this on an OLED. Uh, with perfect black levels and uh, in 4K and Dolby Atmos surround sound, and actually it was great. Um, uh, so this is this isn't a great movie, but it's a good one. It's the 
a, a solid one. Uh, the kind of movie that I that I used to really just enjoy seeing on a regular basis. Um, there are things in it that don't completely work, that, but a lot of things that do. In particular, some very strong performances, some really nice pacing and photography. Um, I actually want to point out you 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 talked about the the vistas and, and the strong performances, but I want to talk about the pacing in this movie because this is a sub two hour movie that in some ways feels slow and methodical, and yet actually really moves along. Right? It doesn't linger too long in one spot. Like it just gives you just enough. Um, and that's, I think in one of the movies, real virtues is that it is just so pleasantly understated in basically every way. It doesn't, uh, tell you what it's about. It doesn't signpost its themes. Uh, it doesn't even give you a huge amount of information about the central relationship. In some ways, I actually wish it would give it had given us just a little bit more detail, uh, about Kevin Costner and Diane Lane and, and sort of their backstory and, and what they're like together. But I also really appreciate the way the, the director, writer trusted the audience to just sort of fill in the blanks and to see that these people had had a kind of, in some ways, tough and difficult, but also real and loving relationship that had stood the test of time. And, and there's this one little, this little tiny scene, it's probably the most throwaway scene in the movie, is when Kevin Costner, they've left their home, they're going to go, uh, they're trying to find their their grandson and their former stepdaughter, and they stop in town, and Kevin Costner goes and buys himself a half pint of whiskey. And, and they just have this little tiny discussion about how he is happy not to be lectured about the fact that she is not super pleased that he is here in the middle of the day buying himself a half pint of whiskey, kind of drinking it from the bottle on the street, and he's about to go stuff the stuff the bottle under his car. And of course, this leads to actually something important, which is yeah. that he finds that she's brought a gun, right? But it's this, this great little moment that shows they have come to an agreement about how to disagree. And that is what keeps relationships, marriages that are good going for a long time. And it... It's it's a movie that is built on little moments like that, um, and that you know, like I said, yeah, I, it's like I said, it's not a great film. It does have flaws. I think Blanche is is over the top and kind of way too cartoony, especially relative to the central couple. But it, it's just so it's it's the kind of movie I it's the kind of movie I really miss seeing. I, I will say that that the the scene that you are uh, highlighting there is one that jumped out to me as well because it's, it's just incredibly efficient. It is both a character building and a plot moving little piece of writing that kind of keeps things uh, keeps keeps you going from from moment to moment and 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 plot point to plot point. Alyssa, uh, did you care for Let Him Go? I liked it a lot. Um, and it was interesting, Peter, when you started talking about this little scene. I knew exactly what you were going to talk about but there's another scene like that a little bit earlier in the movie um when so maggie has baked a cake and she tells george that it's not for her she's basically using it as an excuse to go over to her former daughter-in-law's house to check up on her grandson and as it turns out that's when she finds out that they've sort of up and left town and we have some plot you know she has to convince george to go with her to go try and get jimmy back and they're in the car and she cuts him a piece of the cake and he brings it back around and says, okay, you know, so I do get a piece after all. And when that happened, I noticed that the plate under the cake was green. And this movie has a, the production design in this is really beautiful and impeccable. And the reason that it's important is the plate that the plate is green is because, um, 
throughout the movie, George has a green color story and Maggie has a yellow one. Like all of the um, kitchen appliance, like all of the, um, you know, bakeware that she has, the mugs, like she wears a lot of yellow outfits um, and her car is yellow. George's car is green. Uh, there's a scene early in the movie where you see him against sort of some green painted on a con- uh, on a concrete wall. And so the fact that the plate in that scene turns out to be green shows sort of the connection between them that she sort of maybe knew all along that she was going to give him a piece of cake. And that kind of impeccable detail is not something you see in movies that often. Um, And Trevor Smith, the production designer, and Amber Humphreys, who's the set decorator, have worked together on a couple of other projects, mostly some TV stuff. Um, But it's the kind of thing where you could see, like, clearly there is a kind of unity of vision and kind of visual intelligence at work in this movie. Um, and it's, you know, without take, being overly flashy, right? It, this is yeah. not a movie that says, Oh, look at me. I've got, I, I'm like some big stylish, right? Like, and not that that's always bad, but this movie just sort of, hold, it just it, it works feels it like it's holding back while ways. also working really in, in, in a lot of, in great depth. And it, yeah, I mean, it seems like this expression of the character's personal styles, but that also really ties the movie together. That said, I think it's a huge mistake that um, the movie ends up taking this sort of Baroque violent turn in the middle. Like, I think Blanche is way over the top, and I think her, like, clan of weird, controlled, like, Mountain West weirdos just is deeply unnecessary to the movie, because you have all of the sort of core emotional stuff here, right? I mean, you have, you know, Maggie pushes too hard. George holds back too much. You know, it's different responses to disappointment and grief. And you could have the sort of domestic violence subplot. You could even have, you know, some of the end results without it needing to be quite so over the top and dramatic. And it just, it, the tone just sort of breaks at that point in the movie of this scene where Blanche is sort of threateningly invited Maggie and George in for dinner. And there's this like ongoing stuff about like pork chops. It's just, you know, because the movie never makes clear why Blanche wants to hang on to her sons in such a profound way. It just, I just, felt like that section of the movie was really badly miscalibrated. And it says a lot about how good Costner. I mean, that's and basically Lane. the whole second half of the film then. But it says a lot about how good Costner and Lane are that, you know, it kind of carries it through anyway. I just think it's just a mistake. It's, it's, I, I have to I I have to disagree and and we uh, I'll pull the curtain back a little bit. Uh, Peter had warned Alyssa about a scene about midway through the film where spoilers. If you're if if you're listening at this point you're, and you're you haven't gotten used to the spoiler spoilers. But the uh, there's there's a moment when the wee boy clan comes to the hotel room and and threatens uh, uh, the black ledges and says, you got it. You guys got to get out of here and they're going to do violence to them. And then Kevin Costner gets his fingers cut off, gets like three fingers on, on one of, on his right hand cut off. And, and you know, it, it is, it is incredibly tense and incredibly violent, but you, you need that. And you need, I think the conclusion to drive home what really is the theme of the film, which is how much of yourself will you give up to protect somebody else i mean there's there's a there's this great scene 
I guess it was, I can't remember if it was in the hospital or just after where, uh, you know, Kevin Costner's like, well, how much more are we going to have to give? You know, how much, how much more can we give? He's gone. He's gone. You have to let him go. I don't think he actually says let, let him go, but you have to, you have to let him go. They like this. How much more can we, can we be asked to give? They'll take pieces of me and then they'll come and they'll take pieces of you. And then they'll take pieces of him just to spite us. And I, you know, the, the conclusion of the film where, where George essentially sacrifices himself knowingly, knowing he is going to his death to save this boy. Spoilers. Is kind of, is kind of the point of the film. It is, this is, you know, when you say let him go, who is the him? Is it Kevin Costner or is it the boy? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, like, you could calibrate this differently if the movie had given us a little bit more of Lorna, um, their former daughter-in-law. And, you know, the only thing that you really get about her in the movie is that, you know, she's really passive. She's just a really passive person. And, you know, in this initial scene, um, when you meet her, the first interaction she has with the Blackledges, other than sort of cooking breakfast with them, is, you know, she's giving baby Jimmy a bath and she's running the water too hot. And Margaret doesn't just come over, check the water and say, hey, you might want to turn that down. She hustles Lorna off and basically just takes over bathing Jimmy, you know, doesn't help her learn as a mom, doesn't sort of respect her place as Lorna's, uh, she doesn't respect Lorna's place as Jimmy's mother. She just sort of kind of co-ops that role. And then, you know, we see her get remarried. We see none of her courtship. We see none of her sort of life with the Blackledges after she's widowed. We don't know why she marries this guy. Um, And you could play with the sort of tension there a little bit more. And, you know, I mean, the violent dynamic could be mostly between her and her husband rather than, again, like some really extended clan of crazy people. Um, If we understood her more and understood like why she might be interested in this person, what the pull is, what the dynamic is there. Um, But she's just sort of a void that gets filled in with like a bunch of crazy. And that doesn't seem necessary to me. Like you can still have an act of sort of spasmodic violence um, without needing it to deliver it in like precisely that fashion. Um, And it would be a more interesting movie about domestic violence too. It's like, what if, you know, if Lorna is trying to like assert herself as a mother and get some independence by marrying someone else. Yeah. I mean, but because none of that is developed at all, um, the movie, I think kind of misses an opportunity. Like, I think you can make the point that Sonny is raising here and actually make it maybe in more dimensions with the involvement of more characters. Um, if you don't need to go super broad with, with the Leslie Manville character. I mean, I think, when you're talking about the characters being underdeveloped, this movie is a real lesson in the difference between good acting and great actor acting um, because all of the characters and all of the relationships are in some ways underdeveloped, but you can see which actors can just make something out of it anyway, something that's deep and real and true. And that's Costner and Diane Lane. And they just make something out of characters who on the page, I wouldn't say that they're badly written, but there's just there's there's still not a huge amount to them there. Um, I do think I kind of know what this movie was going for. Um, it was it's this is this is trying to be a movie about family, about how family is hard, about how family is or at least can be a kind of madness, how it demands a lot of you um, and how some families sort of find a way through that that is loving and good. And some 
find one that isn't. Uh, and it's and and I think it's trying to be a contrast between these two families. It's just that the the, the wee boys are are it's not just that they're undeveloped that they're so cartoonishly villainous. Yeah. Right? There's just just not yeah. that much to them. But I also kind of wonder if and I don't know if this is true or not, but I wonder if the origin of this was that uh you know was that bazooka uh, wanted to bazooka bazooka wanted to make a movie about an aging couple and thought well the way to get that made is to turn this into a kind of a a western thriller and i don't know if you guys have heard this story from ari aster the director of hereditary so he's very young uh, right and he's just getting you know was just getting started i think he uh directed hereditary when he was 28 or something like that um uh, and he talked about getting out of film school and he'd written all of these scripts and he wanted to write a movie about a family and about a mother who had psychological issues. And he he had these other scripts that were just sort of domestic dramas and nobody was really interested in them. But he had this thought, what if I just made a domestic drama and disguised it as a completely bonkers, like satanic ritual horror film that escalates. Yeah. And he got $5 million to make it. It was a great movie. It made a huge amount of money. He's now like a, a big up and comer. But I think this is a real thing in today's Hollywood is that if you want to explore some of those adult themes and relationships that have something to do with the real world, you need a pulp genre element in, involved in it, even if you're making a Kevin Costner movie, even if you're making a, you know a relatively low budget film, it's just hard to get those sort of truly grounded domestic dramas. I'm not saying that there's you can't think of an example of them, but it seems pretty clear that filmmakers who want to make those purely domestic dramas have difficulty getting those made unless you put some chopped off fingers or you know uh, cult mamas in the movies. Yeah, Kevin Costner is often best in this mode, though, right? I mean, you get a movie like Open Range, which uh, is one of the one of the few great westerns of the the twenty first yeah. century. Or uh, I, I mean, I don't know. You, you could go the sports route, right? Look yeah. at Tin Cup or Bull Durham, right? It's it's the it's. I do think that there's always kind of that element to. I'm sorry, Alyssa, I interrupted. Oh no you. problem. I mean, I was actually going to bring up Bull Durham, which is one of my favorite movies ever, and I mean. It, but Costner is sort of a, he's incredibly good in a kind of movie that is not really made without that kind of genre element anymore, right? I mean, he is he is an actor who is really interested in acting for other adults and is really good at that, um, you know? Do we, have either of you guys watched Yellowstone at all? Yellowstone is like apparently one of the highest rated shows on TV, cable, or or network. Um, and I, I have not watched that at all, but apparently Costner is very, very good in it. It was a, a Taylor, Taylor Sheridan production. Oh, we should, we, we should talk about yeah. it sometime. Should, I haven't seen it, it, but I have had a bottle of Yellowstone whiskey. Well, that's just, that's the same base, same, same. So what did you make of Yellowstone, Peter? <laughs> Kevin Costner was great in that whiskey. <laughs> uh, Kevin Costner was also great in the actual Yellowstone park, which it comes highly recommended. Uh, okay. Uh, one, I, one other thing I, I thought you were going to kind of joke about this, Peter. It's why I started smiling very broadly during your, your, your last little, little, uh, bit of talking, but it, it little felt bit. like, come on, it, it felt like a, a let him go felt almost like a better version of hillbilly elegy insofar as it is, yeah. it, insofar as it is very much about, 
kind of working class people one family has made good choices and one family has made bad choices and you see how the good choices of one family has kind of uh you know inculcated a a better uh i don't know a better a better way of living in them and then you have like a deranged clan of lunatics and the the problem with hillbilly elegy is that it just has the deranged clan of lunatics and then something good kind of springs up out of that but at the same time one of the ways that um let it go works kind of counter to that is that it kind of acknowledges this random element of fate, right? I mean, you can do all of the right things and your talented, lovely, wonderful son who has given you an adorable grandson can still die in just a really sad freak accident. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um, the thing that, you know, doing all the right things doesn't always protect you. There's also yeah. just how, how understated it is. And I want to yeah. go back to this because it was, uh, especially a contrast just a few days after having seen Hillbilly Elegy to see this. Uh, Hillbilly Elegy, one of the problems, and we talked about this, is that there isn't a huge amount of narrative arc and drive. It's just sort of you get a scene in which this should be a normal family interaction and nope, it goes really crazy and wrong. And then you get another one and it's just fireworks and fireworks and histrionics over and over. And it doesn't kind of build. It doesn't give you any sense of how the characters are and they're like, they're sort of of how they're normal in in any way, right? It's just histrionics over and over again. And Let Him Go just has this great sense of of build and drive to it, right? The each little bit beat builds on the next one. Um and it also it doesn't do the Ron Howard big Hollywood Oscar bait thing of having a big speech at the end that tells you what the hell the movie's about. And Ron what? Howard can't resist this. He is he is Steven Spielberg level bad at just being unable to resist having a character deliver a monologue on what all this meant to me and how I changed and what this me means to the world. And like, and that's, that's not in let him go. And I think you could argue that maybe the movie is too understated that there's just not enough there at the same time, after having seen hillbilly elegy, I really appreciated that willingness to just not say it. And just sort of trust you. I mean, in it, I would go even further than that and say there is almost like an anti-speech moment, right? Because you have this sort of midway through the movie, um, George asks Maggie what she said to a horse that she really loved before he put it down because he she had sort of whispered in the horse's ear. And she explains that she wanted to send out the horse with all these good memories of their best times together. And so – at the end of the movie, when George is dying, Maggie sort of leans down and is clearly whispering to George in the same way. And the movie very deliberately does not show you what she's saying. They, it withholds that and keeps it private. Um, and it's really effective. I mean, I had thought that- but you kind of know what types of things she's saying, oh, right? Exactly. You know, And that's I mean, because you, she you, says that she told, whispered into the horse, you know, sort of uh, memories of great times together, basically, yeah. is what it came down to. And you, right? And- so and, you know, you know, but it doesn't have to do it. I will I will say that the language of the film there is a little bit awkward because the way that they do this is they cut to, uh, so as she is whispering to Ke dying Kevin Costner, they cut to uh, her whispering to the horse, or no, they they cut to her. The they cut to him. They cut to they cut to him walking away from having shot the horse. And the first thing I thought was, why would 
her parting words to him to send him into the afterlife be like, remember when you shot my horse in the face? I mean, I <laughs> like it just, it's, why it's, I did this. this I sent you to your is... death because you shot my horse. Yeah. I mean, I like it just, it, it, I, I agree with you that this is, this is the point that they, that, that, that they were trying to like leave that moment kind of private to have it. But it just, again, it, it like, it is understated to the point of almost confusion uh, uh, there in that, in that moment. Um, yeah, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Let Him Go? Uh, thumbs up, because those are the only fingers that George has after getting him hacked oh, off. Oh, he's, he's got some of his fingers on one of his hands. The left hand. Uh, thumbs up. Uh, also, thumbs up. Three thumbs ups. Big, everyone should. It's $20. Go get it on the PVOD. Um, that is it for today's show uh, if you loved it please make sure to check out our members only bonus episode at bulwark plus we'll actually be talking about hillbilly elegy again it'll be it'll be great it'll be a nice little callback here uh and we will also uh be back next week if you love the show tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences and if we don't grow we'll die review us at apple if you didn't love us uh, and if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. Yet again, we're back, baby. Just like theaters. See you guys next week. Bye.